I came to get a better life, more economic, and to support my family. I wasn't aware of being an immigrant and the emotional charges that came with it until I was in eighth grade. Those were the voices of Jose Palacio and Saul Grujon. Both Jose and Saul came here without documentation. Jose as an adult and Saul as a child. Jose came from Colombia for work and to improve his family's financial situation. Saul was a teenager when he realized that he didn't have a legitimate social security number and that his family was undocumented. Hi, I'm John Vosey, executive producer of Words in Transit. Words in Transit is a project of New England Public Radio and is being offered in conjunction with the release of a book of the same name, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Our goal was to bring the national conversation on immigration home to our community here in western Massachusetts and to present stories of individuals that have settled in the United States from around the world. We spoke with immigrants from Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America. Here's Tema Silk, the managing director of Words in Transit, to tell us more about Jose and Saul. From his job at his father's mini-store in a little town in Colombia, Jose Palacio made enough money to support himself, his wife, and their two daughters. But when his father decided to sell the business, Jose was out of work and without prospects, except there was a cousin in the United States. So Jose came, without documentation, settling in Connecticut. For most of his time here, he came in 1990, he's worked two jobs in order to make ends meet. That's meant little sleep and no time to study English formally. At the time of our interview, he'd just begun attending classes. He still managed to paint for us a detailed picture of the perils he faced, both leaving his native country and coming to this one without the necessary paperwork. Here's Jose. I came to get a better life, more economic, and to support my family. My father got like a store, a mini store. I work over there with him, but he decides to sell the store and find myself doing nothing. I finished my high school, but didn't do anything more. I got some family over here. I crossed the line, go to find a, a visa to fly to Guatemala, Guatemala, Mexico, and Mexico, United States. We hire a, a coyote, and from Guatemala, we have to hide in the cars and houses and Nobody can see us because people start talking and the police come, take us out. We are about 14 guys in a van and all on the floor, one next to the other one. And the guy say, keep your head down. Don't even raise your head. And they bring us to a house full of people, 200, 300 people in a small house. You gotta line up for shower to eat to everything. They got different houses, but when I get Arizona, they got another house where they start sending people. They ask for money, get the ticket, and send out everyone to different places. My whole trip, I spent about five thousand. My brother, my older brother, he borrowed me the money, and I have to pay him back. My cousin is waiting for me, and I stay in his home. Uh, he helped me out to find a job. 
I got five months in my coaching house. I can find work for five months. I don't know places. I I didn't even go out because I'm scared. The police and we just try to keep contact with the people we can speak, like Spanish. Go to the grocery store, get the things, and that's it. No contact with English speaker. I'm a little afraid when somebody come to me and speak English because I know mine is not so good. Some people try to understand us, but some others, when I say something wrong, what? Why you say that? Make me like scared or I start doing a, a full time cleaning and then find another full time in a factory doing manufacturing. I work 16 hours a day for 20 years. I wake up five in the morning and go to bed two o'clock in the morning. Four hours of sleep every day. They offer better opportunities to people who speak good English, who doesn't speak. They can get better opportunities. We can see that in my work. When I talk to co-workers, they say, hey, in the library, they got classes, English classes, ESL. And I went over there, and when I can, I go and try to learn, and I read a lot. But I need more, spend more time speaking English. When I came, I get illegal. And I got to do something. I say, if I keep doing like this without papers, I better go home. Or if I find some some help, I, I fix it and I can stay. I came here in 1990 and I fixed the problem in, in 2009. My employer helped me to get my papers. In my country, I used to drink a lot, alcohol, and the friends I got, no, the best. And uh, if I stay there, I'm not go I didn't go anywhere. And I, over here, I got some plans. When I came here, I see myself alone, and I start thinking I do something for me. And that's why I start going to the gym several years ago, and then find a bicycle and start doing it, yeah. like it, and I keep going. And now I got four bikes already. <laughs> now I spend my time in, in that thing. That was Jose Palacio. Now we'll hear from Saul Grujan. When we interviewed Saul, he was soon to graduate from college. His family had arrived in New Jersey from the Dominican Republic when he was two years old. And for most of his childhood, he wasn't aware they'd come without papers. That he was undocumented became crucially important once Saul ran away from home as a teenager, having come out to his family and encountered such hostility that it felt dangerous to stay. Here's Saul. I wasn't aware of being an immigrant and the, the emotional charges that came with it until I was in eighth grade. I was about to graduate from my middle school and they needed a baby picture of me and I had a passport with the only baby picture that my parents had of me and I cut that picture out of the passport and I showed it to my teacher and everyone 
meaning my classmates, they realized that I had the stamp of a permanent resident, so I wasn't legal in the country, and I didn't know what that meant. Terms like social security or permanent residency never came up when I was at home or at school, so I wasn't really aware of it until eighth grade. But I realized what, how important it was to have a social security number. My 10th grade year in high school, I went to a Scholar Institute program. And in order to qualify for scholarships, they needed my social security number. And that's when I asked my parents. And they told me that I didn't have one. Around my junior year, I became homeless because of my sexual orientation and I was the only homosexual in the family, so it was odd. Just the thought of liking other men was absurd. And my mother was a religious zealot, and my father was a male chauvinist, and <laughs> homosexuality didn't really exist in religion or a male chauvinist-like setting. It got physical. I started realizing that I didn't have to succumb to my parents' way, that I didn't have to live a double life. I read books. I read Beloved. I read The Why Oleander. And, you know, I started identifying myself with these characters who left their homes for certain reasons. And... I had to run away at some point because my father was such an aggressive, physical man that he was so aggressive to the point where I my life was in danger, basically. And although I was undocumented, I really couldn't go far or do much because they instilled a fear in me that if immigration caught me, that I would be deported back to my country. So... My actions were very limited, and luckily I I had friends that allowed me to stay with them, and they didn't really hesitate taking me in because they saw bruises and, you know, other injuries on me that compelled them to, to help me. I was completely scared because I didn't know that I was not wanted in the United States, that I was undocumented, that I didn't have a right. And being told that I was going to be sent back to a country that I didn't acknowledge as my own because I wasn't raised there. When I could no longer reside with my friends for fear of telling them that I was undocumented, I had to live in homeless shelters. So I lived in the Covenant House for a very short amount of time. And that was uh, very traumatizing because there were other homeless that were different, that didn't have any interest in reading books, that didn't want to go to school, that college, whenever they heard the word college, it meant nothing to them. and teens that were angry and upset with with their parents and not having a job and not having a, a place to stay and having to share a bedroom with 23 others and being so restricted to 
to behave a certain way. And because if you didn't follow the rules, you were kicked out and you were in the streets and nobody wanted to be in the streets. I didn't like that living situation. So I looked for other shelters and that's when I called one of my high school mentors. I was in a program called Pathways to College and it's a program for, it's like a pre-college program for students who are located in urban settings and don't have much resources and that could use the guidance of someone who knows about college and someone that can encourage you and push you to apply to institutions like the one that I'm in and other institutions that provide full financial aid regardless of whether you're legal or whether you can afford to to attend that school. I called my mentor and she had a network of people that were interested in helping me. All of a sudden, people just started contributing to the the rent expenses at the YMCA. And I had my own room. I had a side job with Pathways to College and they tried their very best to help me, although their commitment was to help me until I graduated high school. And here I was two years after high school and they were still helping me. A guidance counselor from my school couldn't believe the situation that I was in. And when they looked at my transcript, there was a social security number. And it just so happens that every student, whether they're documented or not, they they have a, a bogus social security number. So they verify whether it was my social security number and it wasn't. So she did so much research and she looked into Catholic charities in Trenton, New Jersey, and they offered to help me at, at no cost. That's how I found out about VAWA and how I could apply for for a green card. It was very difficult because they needed evidence of the domestic violence acts, you know, from individuals that saw my parents hurting me at some point. So I needed at least five letters. And the most important one was from my sister because she she grew up with me and she saw too much of it, too much of the violence. And they really needed her testimony. I told my sister that she had to try her best to remember what happened that night. And she couldn't do it. She said that she could never talk about what happened that night. And then I saw it in her eyes. She she was thinking about it. And then I started thinking about it. And I remember coming back home from Barringer High School with a gay bracelet. And my mother seen me go into my room. When I came back out of my bedroom, my mom saw my wrist and asked me if she could pray for me. And I got nervous. I hesitated to move forward and to allow my mom to pray for me, but she just said, come my son, I, I just wanna pray for you. I closed my eyes. 
and I feel my mother's arm around me and she started praying the Hail Mary in Spanish. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios, ruega por ella y nosotros los pecadores. And then all of a sudden I felt olive oil dripping down from my forehead to my shirt. And I told my mom, Mom, please, please, Mom, I'm your son. Didn't do this to me, please. And she said, you are not my son. And you are not gay. And if you are gay, then this is what's going to happen to you. And then all of a sudden, my mother turned to the stove. She turned the stove on, lit a piece of paper on fire, and threw it on me. And then I yelled, Johnny, I'm on fire. Johnny, please help me. I'm on fire. And then all of a sudden, my sister just pushes me and slaps my mother and tells her, you are not God, and you are not a good mother. Who do you think you are trying to take the life of your own child? And then all of a sudden, my sister turned to a cabinet. She took out a knife, and then she ripped my shirt open, and I freed myself from the fire. She thought about it. I thought about it. And I told her that she had to do it, that this was the only way that I was going to become legal. And she said why don't you just marry a woman? And I said, what kind of man would marry a woman being gay and lie to her in the most important night of her life? And she said, you're right. I have to sign this. That was Sewell Grujan. Before Saul, we heard from Jose Palacio. To see photographs of Saul and Jose, and to hear all of the Words in Transit interviews, visit our website at nepr.net, where you can also learn about upcoming Words in Transit events. You can also find information about all of NEPR's podcasts at nepr.net or on iTunes. Let us know what you think about Words in Transit. Review us on iTunes or send an email to radio at nepr.net. To see additional photographs and to read transcripts of all of our interviews, see the Words in Transit book, available from the University of Massachusetts Press. Proceeds from the sale of the book benefit the Words in Transit Immigrant Scholarship Fund at Holyoke Community College. For many, life here provides opportunities, but not without some loss. Next time on Words in Transit, Third Culture Kids. I know there is an expression called third culture kid, which is someone who normally grows up in a culture different than their parents. But I know what I fit is what's called the adult third culture kid, someone who has been away from their country for a very long time and feels can never fit in to belong here 100%. Every year I got to fill my soul and it would get filled the second I flew over and saw the patchwork of green. And I could walk on the cliffs and smell the air and the seaweed. Next time we hear stories from a Palestinian woman and an Irish woman about missing the culture of their homeland. That's next time on Words in Transit. The managing director of Words in Transit is Tema Silk. The producer is Kathleen O'Keefe. And we had help in this podcast from Sara Redigieri. I'm John Vosey. Thank you for listening. 
Words in Transit is a production of New England Public Radio in collaboration with the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College.